Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by Planet Fitness. Hey, Black, it's 2020, and I am so motivated to work on this dad bod. I bet you are, Deck. I think Planet Fitness is the perfect place to do that, considering how much we travel. You're right, Black. I couldn't agree more. They have more than 1,800 locations nationwide with some of the cleanest spaces we've ever worked out in. Yeah, and don't forget the friendly staff and unlimited free fitness classes. So head over to their website today, planetfitness.com, and join us in making 2020 the year we rid the dad bod. Hey, Black. Can I ask you a personal question? Deck, I'm not talking lotion or politics with you. You know what, Black? Maybe you're right for once. But hey, the next presidential election is right around the corner. It was pretty reassuring to hear that our guest aims to provide the truth above all else. True. I was also really impressed with his family lineage. I mean, Rosa Parks? Mind is blown. He has definitely accomplished a lot and made his family extremely proud. Let's dive in. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me on, guys. No, absolutely. So I first wanted to, um, you know, you're a pristine guest. We're super hap- happy to have you on. But I wanted to, uh, you know, go over a brief, because Calvin usually does the intro since we've gotten to know each other. I wanted to do you justice because we're super excited to have you. So I'm going to give a quick background. And uh, please correct me if there's anything I missed here. But um, in 2013, uh, you were named uh, or announced as the first African-American CBS News correspondent. Um, While in the previous 10 years, you had received multiple Emmy Award winners while at WABC TV in New York. Um, Currently, you cover justice and homeland security for CBS and based in Washington, D.C., And I know you're a little bit busy right now. (laughs) Um, In his more than two decades of experience, uh, you have covered stories of national and international magnitude, including presidential elections, Hurricane Sandy, 2009 mass shooting at Fort Hood, uh, Hurricane Rita, and the story of Elian Gonzalez, just to name a few. Also, a very well-known author, wrote two books, I believe you might be working on a third, I'm not sure, but uh, Black and Blue, Inside the Divide between the police and black America, and also uh, how Russia undermined American democracy uh, last year in 2018. But last but not least, I know you're a proud graduate of our university, Miami University, where you also played football and were a wide receiver, and much better than my partner in crime here, Mr. Blackman. He was a star, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) So long long ado, welcome back uh, to the UDP. Um, or welcome to the UDP and glad to have you again. Well, thanks guys. It's a, a real honor to, to be on the podcast with you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to your questions, even though I'm the one who's usually asking the questions. So we'll, we'll see what you come up with. 
We'll we'll uh we'll see what we can do. You're probably uh, much better at this than us, as, as you'll find out. But again, you know the UDP we're growing every day. So we're like Kyle said, man, we are excited to have you. Um, and we typically like to get started off. Uh, obviously, this is going to be about you know your life journey uh, and, and to where you have grown and and, and uh, you know in your professional career and where you are today. Um, and want to go back to you know the beginning. Uh, you know early on in your life. Um, as a young kid, I know you, uh, you grew up and you, you traveled the world, you lived quite a few places, um, you know, in your first, I believe it was, you know, 12, 13 years of your life. Uh, take us back to that time as a young, you know, as a young boy, uh, early on, you know, growing up and kind of what your childhood was like, uh, as you were kind of moving around the world. Uh, well, it was an exciting adventure. My father was a banker for the IMF, International Monetary Fund, as well as the World Bank and Citibank. And because he was uh, an African-American male who could speak fluent French, who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, this was the 70s. And so there weren't a lot of people like him who could go to places on the continent of Africa and essentially start businesses there uh, on behalf of these banks, Citibank, World Bank, IMF, uh, engage with local politicians there. Uh, And so he had a real unique opportunity to travel the world and we went with him and You know, frankly, for the first 13 years of my life, though I was born an American, you know, at times I didn't feel American because I I really didn't live here for the first, you know, first several years of my life. I would come to know the U.S. by, you know, when I visited my grandparents in Montgomery, Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, and that was it. And so overseas... While the people that we met there knew that I was American, you know, it it took me probably until I was 14, 15 years old until I really felt like an American. And one, you know, I think glaring example of that is that for, you know, the first several years of my life, I was a soccer player. Um, And I, you know, I, I was showing some talent as a, as a young soccer player overseas uh, and I played tennis as well, but I, I really was focused on playing soccer because that was the dominant sport in a lot of these countries that we lived in. And then, you know, when I got when I came back to the U.S., my goal was to be as American as possible. And to me, that meant playing a sport as crazy as this is going to sound, but playing a sport with cheerleaders. Uh, and so your head was in the right place (laughs) well you know I was a young guy and I noticed that oh wow football they have cheerleaders how cool Uh, and then in the movies the football players are already always the the popular kids the cool kids and so I turned my sights from football or from soccer to American football uh, and the rest is history, history as far as my uh, exploits on the football field, on the gridiron. But that's basically how it started, and that's how uh, traveling overseas and living overseas influenced the sports that I played. Now, 
it also influenced me in other ways in that I have a different, I think I have a different perspective of the world than most Americans have because I've lived in other places. I, I believe I've seen how other people think and why they react a certain way to certain things and how they view Americans and, uh, you know, some of the things that they can learn from us and some of the things that we can learn from them. So I, I believe I have a worldly perspective, which, which helps to this day in the job that I do. At what age would you say that you, uh, you know, became to appreciate the American culture with growing up and having moved around? Uh, you know, obviously sports, you know, you, you realize you need, you need to play sports with cheerleaders. But when you start to talk about culture and seeing, you know, the American way, at what age did you start to, to really appreciate, uh, you know, the United States? Well... You have to, you know, in answering this question, you have to sort of consider my background and my parents' background. My parents grew up in the deep South, both African-American. My mother was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, at the height of the civil rights movement. Um, through, you know, my, my family relations were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. My grandmother's second cousin was Rosa Parks. Uh, my father on his side was heavily involved as a teenager in the civil rights movement, um, participated in sit-ins when he went to college in, in Georgia, was actually expelled from the state as a 15-year-old for sit-ins. He was told by the judge, boy, you better get out of the state by night nightfall or before midnight, and don't you ever come back. You know, he was a 15-year-old thrown in jail for, uh, for a sit-in, uh, and he happened to be in college at that time. So he was a, a, a bright young man who uh, was also uh, keenly aware of his standing in America at that time as a black male and as an African-American, period. And so... Even though I grew up overseas, you know, I was aware of discrimination in America, the struggles that my parents and my grandparents had lived through and yet uh, thrived through. Uh, and still, I loved this country. Because when I was overseas, I'd encounter people who would, who, you know, people in those countries who loved America. They loved what America stood for. They loved blue jeans. They loved hamburgers. They loved apple pie. They wanted to know more about baseball. Uh, you know, and, and at that time, we, Hollywood was an exporter of, Hollywood stars and movies. And so the American brand was something that was worldwide and everybody at that time wanted to be an American. And they looked at me as, as someone who was a representative of something that they thought was really special. And so, you know, I wanted to be as American as I possibly could be because despite the history uh, that my family had lived through, you know, I had a real fondness for, for what America stood for.
Uh, and so, you know, to answer your question, you know, that's what I, I love the fabric of America that, you know, I, I learned at an early age that about this thing called the American dream, which people, you know, people debate now whether that even exists, but at that time there was no debate about it. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you, you knew that there was this American dream that you could achieve if you worked hard, uh, you would have the opportunity to do better. And, you know, my parents, like I'm sure your parents, uh, believe that their kids could do better. Uh, so there was this optimism, no matter who was president at this time, at that time, there, there was, uh, an optimism that sort of permeated what it meant to be an American. Think- uh, and that's what I was raised, uh, believing, uh, and hoping and, and knowing that if I worked hard, yeah, my dreams could come true as well. And I could achieve the American dream and make things better for my family. Uh, and I know that's what my parents believe, despite, you know, what they experienced in this country growing up. Jim Crow laws, separate but equal, you know, drinking out of black, you know, they could only drink out of certain water fountains in the South. There was the fight for their right to vote. And even when they got that, there were people who tried to take that vote away. So despite all that, my parents still raised me with this, this optimism, uh, you know, what it means to be an American, to have this optimistic attitude that I think people in these countries that I lived in, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, even France, they looked up to Americans. They looked up to America as this city on a hill that they wanted to be a part of because it w- they knew that it was so exciting and that anything was possible in this country. And so that's, that's the attitude that I grew up with. Uh, you know, as I lived overseas, looking to America where I wanted to be. Now, Jeff, would you say that your grandparents and your parents with you breaking that barrier with CBS News in 2013, you know, having the accomplishment of being the first African-American news correspondent, would you base that kind of off of that optimism you just spoke about from your grandparents and parents? Well, and, you know, I, I will say CBS has had other African-American correspondents um, throughout its, its history. You know, depending on who you talk to, not as many as they would like to see, but the barrier that I broke, I would say, is that I was the first African-American justice and homeland security correspondent at a time when, and that was, I I started out in 2013 as a general assignment correspondent for CBS News, then two months or so after I got here, I was promoted to covering transportation, um, and, you know, during a time when two or three planes dropped out of the air, um, so it was a busy time on that beat. And then a year later or so, I was promoted to justice and Homeland Security at a time when you had Ferguson, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. So I was elevated to justice and Homeland Security correspondent and the first justice black justice and homeland security correspondent that CBS News has ever had. 
at a time when you had these police allegations of excessive force, these police shootings. So there was there was a lot of emotion tied up in these stories. And I felt uh, my elevation to that position was timely because, you know, in my career as a journalist, and I've been a journalist for 30 years, and I've always covered law enforcement. And so I felt I had a unique perspective, given my background with my family growing up in the deep Jim Crow South in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, my upbringing, and then my experience covering law enforcement. I thought that it put me in a unique position to cover these very important stories in the wake of Ferguson as police departments across the country tried to reform some of their practices, some of their policies. It was, in my view, a good position to be in, and that's why I ended up writing the book that I wrote, Black and Blue, which talked about the relationship between the black community and police. I felt like I had a unique perspective to do that and to do it in such a way that you could tell the story right down the middle. I didn't want to take sides. The goal of the book was to tell people, you know, to, to inform people on both sides of the, this, this debate, whether you support law enforcement or whether you are critical of law enforcement and are one of the protesters, for example. I wanted to give someone who was, you know, in the protesters camp, a view of what it's like to be a police officer and why you have these confrontations. And then if you're a, a you know, someone who supports law enforcement, you believe you support law enforcement 100%. Well, how, why do these, these protesters feel the way they do? You know, I wanted those people who support law enforcement to come away and understand, well, what is the history here? Why do you have all this frustration, this anger? Where is this coming from? Because until you can bridge the gap between these uh, sides of this debate who both are emotional, until you can break down the walls and understand where each side is coming from, you cannot solve this problem. Um, and, you know, I wrote the book so that could pe so people could be armed with the facts to actually solve the problem, to walk in each other's shoes, to understand what it's like to be an African-American male in, in Cincinnati, for example, and feel like police are always looking at you, stopping you, suspicious of you. Well, how, how do you expect them to view law enforcement? They're not going to view law enforcement as something that's good for them or helping them. Uh, or if you're living on in Harlem in New York City and you have police officers stopping you for no reason and, and, and patting you down, even though that you've not violated any laws, so how do you expect police to view you? Or on the other side, if you're a police officer, and you have people in some of these communities that you came to serve always looking at you with suspicion, not responding to your requests or commands if they are doing something wrong, disrespecting you, throwing things at you, always videotaping at you. Well, it's understandable that there would be some 
animosity. And maybe that's too strong a word, but animosity. So you can see how both sides can get sort of dug in in their positions, and the problem never improves. But I have talked to. Uh, go ahead. No, you go. Um, sorry, I, I, I mean, this is, uh, this is a, ama- like, this is great. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, to get really kind of the. Sorry, end- I, I, I could talk your ears off. <laughs> we love it. We, we love, love it. it. Right, Keep going. Right, right, yeah. we, our, our mentor said we need to do more listening than talking, so we're trying to do that. So yeah, and I and I apologize for interrupting. Um, I think I just. When I hear, when I listen to you talk, um, and I go back to, you know, you took this role, um, you know, to cover, you know, justice and homeland security, um, and you talked a little bit about it. You know, there's both sides of the fence. Um, what goes into, you know, when you first took this role, knowing that you wanted to kind of be, you know, be right down the middle. What goes into your prep preparation of, okay, this is the message I want to convey and get out to the public without being biased because so many times you hear in the news Fox is biased of this way CNN's biased of this way so when you're coming out and you want to get a message down the middle obviously there's going to be critics and different things but what goes into that preparation in your mindset to make sure that you're able to kind of get that message out um, clear concise and, and and down the middle well I have I have always you know, it's just in my nature to be, to walk in the middle. Um, I did not get into this business to do propaganda. That's not what I do. I'm not into propaganda. Um, I have always been in this business. Um, frankly, anything that I've done, um, it's to expose the truth. It's to uncover what is happening in communities across America. First, if it's violating a law. Second, if, you know, people who can't defend themselves are being taken, taken advantage of. People who don't have the power or the money to defend themselves are being taken advantage of. That's what I've always done, you know, in, in, you know, even though I'm five, six, and that's probably being generous. Um, I was always the guy, I was always the guy who would stand up for the little guy who was being picked up, picked on by the bully. That's just always, that's who I am. That's who I will always be. And so I don't do propaganda. I don't appreciate news organizations that take sides. That's not what we do at CBS News, and that's why I like CBS News. It has a tradition going back decades with Walter Cronkite, Edward R. Murrow, um, and others to just tell the story as it is, to present both sides of a story give people a chance to respond to a story. That's what journalism is. I know that it has been perverted. It has been mischaracterized. It has been unfairly maligned, biased. But 
the vast majority of journalists in this country tell both sides of the story, and in doing that, present an accurate picture of what's going on in this country. I want to kind of talk about some of the major events, and and I don't have all of the probably the events, obviously, over your, your course of your career, which is vast, but some of the highlights I saw and I grabbed off of uh, cbsnews.com, your uh, bio there, and, and obviously Wikipedia, and you got a lot of stuff out there. I, I, when I met you in Baltimore, I didn't know how, uh, how, uh, how famous, I guess, you are because you're so humble. So I guess credit <laughs> oh, to you. Crazy. I had no idea. You know, I, on, with two little guys at the house, I watch, um, you know, Paw Patrol, and <laughs> I don't get a lot of news. So I'm very... Yeah, I, I'm very, um, yeah, the, the two, a four-year-old boy and a one, uh, they kind of watch uh, little kid shows. But nonetheless, you know, a lot of these events, obviously, I'm very familiar with uh, still being current in the news. But uh, from president elections um, to Hurricane Sandy, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, the shooting at Fort Hood, Hurricane Rita, uh, Elian Gonzalez, what, what are some of the ones, I know it'd probably be hard to, to rank the most, I guess, impactful or... Um, emotional like how would you rate you know maybe your top three where you were like wow these there's just so i know you had some other ones uh while you're in new york too so um how would you rate those yeah i yeah i've been in the business 30 years uh so you know i'm i'm sort of long in the tooth and you know you, you think about the events that you've covered uh, and what's amazing is sometimes I forget things until I'm reminded of them. And, you know, in terms of, you know, I can break things down, I guess in terms of natural disasters, and I've covered hurricanes, uh, mostly in Florida, but up and down the East Coast, um, both as an anchor and as a reporter in the middle of it. Uh, the storm that stands out is Superstorm Sandy, which hit New York City. Because at the time, I was in the Rockaways, which is, uh, you know, part of the the city of New York. It's not Manhattan that most people are familiar with, but um, in one of the boroughs. <clears throat> and the storm is coming in. There is high water. I'm live on TV. And so I'm getting inundated with water that's rising. Uh, and as I said, I'm five six. It doesn't take long for <laughs> for water to, to cover me up. Um, so we're on live TV of lot, you know, this rising water, and then behind me, I notice that this block of businesses and homes is going up in flames, and firefighters are trying to rescue people at the same time. And so all of this is happening live on TV. And I have to sort of talk people through it, what's going on behind me, what's going on in front of me. Uh, and so that was, and that was, I was the only one there. There were police officers there at the time who were stranded and they were saying, hey, you got to go live. You got to tell people where we are. So it's one of those instances that could have been quite serious. And that's probably an understatement. But, it, it, you know, when you have police officers asking you for help, that's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> That's when you know you're in trouble. But it worked out. The people were rescued. No loss of life in that area. But it was just one of those memorable moments because it's the kind of thing that, frankly, I grew up 
uh, in journalism wanting to do. Uh, just be there on the front lines when things are happening to write that first draft of history. So that was one incident I would put in the natural disaster category that uh, that really stands out in my career. And it was it was really that event that I think got me noticed nationally that ended up getting me the job at CBS. They, you know, the CBS people came after me and sort of recruited me to to join the organization. And it was soon after uh, Superstorm Sandy. So that that was an important part of my career. And then since I've been at CBS News, I think that, you know, 30 years from now or 20 years from now, when I when I leave CBS News, I think part of what will define my career is this book that I've written about the relationship between the black community and police, but also the work that I've done uh, in my second book, which talks about the how Russia compromised American democracy. And this, this was a book that I started writing at the end of 2016 when most people weren't really paying attention to how Russian intelligence influenced the 2016 election. But I had sources in intelligence and law enforcement who were alarmed by the amount of hacks and cyber attacks that the Russians were carrying out in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, And so I had a lot of information that other people didn't have that I put in this book. And I'm proud of the book because to this day, it matters. And it's a historical account of what happened in that election that will change elections going forward No doubt about that. Russian intelligence really compromised our democracy in that, you know, now obviously we're going through this impeachment process. And in some some ways, all of that is related. The, The Russian operation was so expansive that not only did it raise doubts about the security of the voting booths, the voter databases, elections in general, but it also raised doubts about our elected officials and who they're really working for and whose interest they really have at heart. So no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, you know, that book, in my view, and my work for CBS News covering Russian investigation and Russian influence operations as they related to uh, the U.S. election. I think in a lot of ways it has defined my career and it will define my career going forward. Can I ask a question? Um, So with all of the different events that you've covered, uh, you know, there's a wide variety. Uh, and as we talked a little bit before the call, you know, if, if you, if you get a call now, you could potentially have to, to get up and and run. Um, you know, do you still get that adrenaline? Is there like, is that an adrenaline rush just coming from someone who's never been in your shoes or don't understand the business? Is that an adrenaline rush that comes through, uh, when you get a call to know that there's breaking news or, you know, whether it's the impeachment or a hurricane or, Unfortunately, you know, a mass shooting or something where, you you know, you've got to lock in and kind of get into that 
with, if you want to say that game mode of pregame of, okay, now I've got to lock in and, and get to where I need to go. Is that kind of what happens when you do get these types of calls? Uh, yeah. I mean, in, you know, as, as former football players, in a, in a lot of ways, it's like that game day rush where you have some butterflies because you know, the game is about to start and you gotta, you gotta get it right. Right. You have, I have similar feelings with some of these big events because here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that I don't know where this active shooter situation is going to end up. So I'm talking about something that is unfolding on live TV, which is the type of scenario that can be fraught with mistakes, misinformation that can get you fired. So you have to be cautious. But I'm thinking about all these different scenarios that could go wrong so that they don't go wrong. So I prevent myself from saying something that I can't back up with facts. But all of this is happening on live TV with millions of people tuning in and relying on my expertise as someone who covers justice and homeland security to get them through this situation. So, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Don't drop the ball. And you can't <laughs> drop the ball. Yeah, it's like a, it's but, like a slant route going in the middle linebacker. <laughs> Don't get those alligator exactly. arms. <laughs> yeah. And it's, but listen, it is not unlike, you know, my, our fellow Red Hawk, Brandon Brooks, who has been very public about his struggles with anxiety before, during, games you know obviously he he is one of the best offensive linemen in the national football league plays for the philadelphia eagles and he's been very public about anxiety that's that he has had to deal with also you have kevin love who you know i'm not that i'm aware of has any sort of connection to miami university except for the he plays for the cleveland cavaliers in the same state who has been very public about anxiety that he has experienced. And I bring those cases up because I have gone through and come out of a period where I had that same kind of debilitating anxiety. It's not something that I talk about a lot. I alluded it, alluded to it during a commencement speech at Miami University last spring. And I'm just now at a point where I feel comfortable acknowledging that, yeah, I mean, there have been some breaking news situations where, you know, I have the kind of anxiety that I just, that is debilitating, that can tear you down, that can hurt you, and that can, you know, make you feel helpless. So I am, I am not perfect but when I'm on TV, what I try to do is give our viewers the most accurate information I can possibly give them and do it in such a way that it is clear and concise and they get the information that they need. Um, and Jeff, real quick, I just wanted to jump in and say, you know, our previous guest that we just released this week, Dr. Karen Townsend, said, a, you know, your, your truth can set others free. And I think that's such a, 
you know, um, you being transparent about some of your anxiety and, and issues and talking about Brandon Brooks, you know, who's another Miami alum who actually got announced last night to the Pro Bowl. So go Red Hawks. Um, but, you know, on back to, to the anxiety or mental health um, being open. So I think it's great for people to understand. I talked about in some of the previous episodes, like you said, I've kind of been, you know, pretty private and in, in confidential with, you know, I, I went through a pretty tough time in my mid twenties trying to grow the business and all the different things you go through. But the one kind of common th- thread through these underdog stories and through our platform in the first 14, 15 episodes is, you know, people that sustain excellence or have, uh, you know, your human being, right. They see you on news. Um, but you, you have anxiety or you have maybe depression or you have mental health, uh, struggles or maybe PTSD. You said in another podcast, you're worried about that. There's a lot of things that, uh, you go through as a human being. Um, but that doesn't make you nonetheless, I think previously until this open conversation, at least for me, and now to hear you makes me feel more comfortable with what I went through and continue to go through. Uh, I just think, you know, um, as more education and more, you know, it's just, there's a lot more help out there for, for folks like yourself, myself and others, you know, millions of people. So thank you for, you know, being open about that. Cause I think other people will hear it and say, wow, you know, Jeff, yeah, I see him out there. I see him on the news, but he's, he struggles just like me. Um, which is very, um, comforting, I think for a lot of people. Well, and I, I appreciate you saying that it's really, you know, we, we look around and you, you look at people who are, you know, in quotes successful and you think it's an easy road and it's not, it is a bumpy road. And those who reach the people who reach those levels of success do it because, they fight through depression. They fight through loss. They fight through divorce. They just don't let it, you know, I'm not going to say they don't let it get them down, but they don't let it stop them. Right. You have to be resilient. You know, life is tough. And frankly, (laughs) I think, you know, social media to pick one target has made it tougher because everybody has an opinion and everybody's so quick to criticize no matter what that it's easy to get caught up in that and forget that the people on the other end might be going through something that you just can't get close to understanding. Uh, And I think it's so easy to forget, yeah, that we're all just human and we're all going to go through some sort of adversity. And this is something that I learned playing football, and I'm sure you did too, was that you're going to go, no matter who you are, white, black, rich, poor, you're going to go through some adversity in your life. And the difference between success and failure is how you handle that adversity. Do you let it destroy you? Or do you keep pushing through, keep pushing through, keep pushing through? And there were times in my own life I've been, you know, going through divorce, going through low points where you think, oh, you can't do anything right, where it would be easy to just give up. But what I always think about is what my coaches and what my parents and the people, my friends, I think about what they, I think about their support and I think about how you just got to keep pushing through. No one's perfect. You know, you think that 
you're gonna get married and be with the same person for the rest of your life and it doesn't work out and you feel like a failure. But you can't look at it that way. You know, because if you look at it that way, it'll destroy you. You have to, no matter what it is that happens in your life that's unexpected, maybe it's the death of a loved one that you count on, whatever it is, or you lose that job that you've had for 30 years, you have to push through it. And, you have to keep going. And I would say, and along those lines, I mean, you cover some of the most horrific and terrifying stories ever. So when you talk about pushing through, you know, the families that you probably see, you know, on a regular, consistent basis, you know, you know, we always, as you just kind of said it, we, we always say we never know what someone's going through when we, uh, you know, when you see them walking by you, but you know, you, you just never know. And, and for you to, it, you know, whether it's something, you know, you, you don't get a job offer or something, but you know, you see some of the most, like I said, horrific things where people have lost a loved one to an, a, a tragic, unexpected, unforeseen event. So, um, I, you know, I think what you're saying right now, that message is definitely truly powerful. So appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I, in interacting with the public, sometimes I feel like I'm the grim reaper because I do, I cover the worst stories. There is no doubt. Situations um, where you have parents who are wondering if their kid is going to come home at night. That's not natural. I remember growing up when people used to say, you know, when they go to school, they're safe. The schools used to be where you would send your kids to be safe. We don't look at schools that way anymore, and that's a real tragedy. And so you know, the fact that I have to convey these very somber, sad stories, it's almost, it's, it's almost antithetical to who I am as a person. I think most of the people, when they meet me, they think, oh, he's, you know, he's not at all what I expected, given what he does on TV. You know, I'm a serious journalist, but I usually, when I'm meeting people, interacting people, I'm laughing smiling because frankly given the stories that i cover if you know it's easy to to get down uh and that's just not who i am uh and i'm optimistic that at some point we're going to figure out these active shooting situations so that we can prevent them there's got to be a solution um so you know i try to present to be as upbeat as I possibly can, considering some of the depressing stories that Americans are seeing when they turn on their TVs. But you cannot sanitize reality because that wouldn't be right for a democracy either. You have to present reality as it's happening so that you can then, so that the public, so that lawmakers can have an accurate picture of what's going on so that then you, you can you can truly address these issues so that they don't happen again. Um, and as it relates to these school shootings, I don't know how long that's going to take. But there has to be a way to prevent these school shootings from occurring. 
Yeah. And we, we need more <clears throat> people with your mindset. Like I said, bringing that optimism, we're thankful for your, you're in the role you are. And, and like I said, providing both sides of the story, but Hey, we wanted to give you, we know you get a lot of interviews like this to ask those questions. So we want to kind of turn the page here, Jeff, we call it the rapid rapid fire session. So we're gonna put you on the hot seat a little bit. Um, and I have, I have a good one here for you. Better QB wide receiver duo, Harbaugh, Pagays, or Blackman Decker? First rapid fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, Careful. Gosh. You know, yeah, this is tough. But Kyle, you, you met Coach Harbaugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Coach Harbaugh. You know, I'm a fan of yours too, you guys. You know, but but <laughs> Coach Harbaugh has been around longer than mm-hmm. we have. No offense to him. I <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, right. Hey, um, and just why we're on uh, that topic? One uh, was very thankful to be around you and Coach Harbaugh. What a fantastic individual. Uh, we hope to have him on the podcast down the road. Um, but two, your daughter asked great questions. And three, something I wanted to say before this, as we conclude after these next couple of rapid fire questions is me and you have an uncommon commonality. We always talk about that. And a lot of our things, we are both walk-ons that earn scholarships. So I want to give you a huge shout out. I got a lot of respect for that. I think that attributes to a lot of your career too, because uh, I know how hard that is. So one while we're last, probably football question. So I wanted to, um, you know, at least, at least give you a shout out on, on your, uh, everything you've done for Miami university in the, in the past and moving forward. Um, so, uh, also I guess not football, but sports related. No, you're a big golfer. Um, what is the best part of your golf game? Uh, you know what? It depends on the week, but, uh, <laughs> right now I would say my putting. Okay. Right. Which, uh, which is very important. I'm happy that it's, uh, you know, I can say my punning. Yeah, I thought you might say as a five, a five six height, and I know you. I, I, I saw you in person. I thought you still might pound a three hundred yard driver, but um. I wish, I wish <laughs> that. You know, I, I wish. The fact is, most of the ladies on the PGA are hitting it farther than I do when I drive the ball, and I, I can do about two fifty, but it's just I, I, I gotta. I don't know what I have to do to reach three hundred, but I'm working on it. Play the short game. You got it. <laughs> um what is your favorite book or what what book would you say um has had the most influence on you or that you have maybe gifted to someone else uh you know that is a very good question right now it's this book by my colleague mo rocca uh and i it's right in front of me and I'm reading it because I'm going to, I'm, I'm interviewing him soon for a, a forum that I do, but it's, it's called Mobituaries. And it's really a history book in a lot of ways because it looks back on the lives of famous Americans and gives a different take on their lives. And he did this mobituary about Sammy Davis Jr. That just, gave Sammy's life a different take. And it was really fascinating. I'm I'm a history buff. I all you know when I was at my university, 
those were all always my favorite courses, whether it was art history or American history. Um, and this book, you know, it's not yet a classic. I get that. It's not yet a classic. But Mobituaries just, just takes this interesting look at, at, at America, Americans in politics, Americans in sports, Americans in entertainment. Uh, and it's just a really interesting read that provides uh, not only a lesson in history, but it also, it, it'll make you chuckle. And, you know, given what I do for a living, if I can read a book that makes me laugh <laughs> right, and gain some knowledge... I'm good. Good. I like it. Well, good. We we didn't we we didn't go too heavy. That, that was the only rapid fire we had for you. So you you passed the hot seat. I know that's probably now your your number <laughs> one accomplishment in your career is you passed the hot seat on the Underdog Podcast. So uh, congratulations. That means a lot to me. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Do I get like a certificate or something? We'll put it in your a, a t-shirt. We'll oh, put yeah. it in your mobituary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Good. Yeah. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll definitely good. be getting nice. you some some uh, UDP swag, as we call it. But uh, as we conclude, um, what is next uh, for for yourself coming up? And then, how do people engage? What platforms can they engage and, and follow you? Uh, you can follow me on social media. Yeah, uh, you can really try and, and follow me on the CBS Evening News. I know people are busy, but we're excited about our future. We have new a new evening news anchor, Nora O'Donnell, who's become a friend of mine, and uh, she's now based the show in D.C. Uh, and again, we we try to, to tell a story right down the middle. We know there are people on both sides of these issues, so we try to present both sides, and that's something that you don't get in a lot of other places. Uh, but as far as my career path, I'm going to keep working hard as long as I can uh, and try to reach as many people as I can with what I hope is a positive message whenever that is possible. That's fantastic. And on behalf of myself and Calvin here and, and the rest of the team, you know, want to thank you for your time. We know you're extremely busy. We are glad you didn't get one of those phone calls. We're, we were, we were uh, happy to, to spend this hour or plus with you and um, wishing we'll be following you, obviously. Um, we're going to be rooting for you and continued, uh, you know, great things that you're going to continue to do. So I uh, appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much uh, on, you know, on behalf of the underdogs. Kyle just said, man, thank you for your time. Well, thank you guys. This is a real honor being on the podcast and being invited on. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free T-shirt. See you next week on the UDP podcast.